Scripture reads from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is the Christ is the is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. As we begin the last chapter of 1 John, um, as he brings his letter to a conclusion, we find that he continues to restate the test by which we can know that we're a Christian. In fact, right in the middle of this chapter, we mentioned that a couple of times as we've been going through this series. There in verse 13, he gives this, us his clear purpose why he wrote this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is a letter written to provide the assurance of our salvation. What are the tests? Well, basically, they're the doctrinal tests. We need to know who mankind is as sinners, their lostness, and that we are deserving of God's wrath. Secondly, we need to know and believe that Jesus Christ is what? The Son of God, who came to seek and to save those who are lost by giving up his life for us and that he was raised from the dead. Very important to give us that ultimate victory. Then the moral test that we've been looking at throughout um, is to love one another and to be obedient to God. If we, are, if we have truly believed the, the doctrinal aspects, then the moral action of our faith will be evident, and that's the love and obedience that will be manifested in our life. Faith and action. And if you think about it, that's what the two greatest commandments were all about, weren't they? And those two, those two commandments that Jesus gave was nothing new that Jesus gave at that moment. In fact, they're actually from the Old Testament. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That came from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The second is this, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That came from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So there's nothing new here. But Jesus was reiterating that. And then he said, there is no commandment greater than these. Faith in action. Love the Lord your God. That's the faith part. He has to be your God first. You have to believe who he is and, who, and what he did through his son Jesus Christ before the loving part is even possible. You can't put into action what you don't believe, right? You know, I never really thought about it before, but John's letter here is kind of John's commentary on those two greatest commandments that Jesus had given. But in the midst of, his, of, of continuing his commentary, he introduces us to a new topic or a new issue here this morning in, in these first five verses. Another topic that's really important for us to understand for our faith to be really effective. We are called, excuse me, 
I need to tell you what that topic is. The topic is being an overcomer. Being an overcomer, and we need to view ourselves as that because it's got huge implications for us. The New Testament gives a lot of different titles to us as believers to describe who we are in Christ. We're called Christians, and interestingly enough, that was first used by pagans as a term of derision and scorn describing all those little, little Christs running around. But it's become the most familiar of all terms to describe us, and we, we hold on, on to that with esteem as a term of pride for us. We're also described in the scripture as children. We are children of God, we're children of the light, we're children of the day, we're children of obedience. We're called believers or the faithful, we're called friends of Jesus. We're called brothers and sisters, we're called sheep, we're called uh, saints or holy ones. We're called soldiers, witnesses, stewards, and fellow citizens. Uh, we're called lights in the world, the elect of God, the chosen, ambassadors for Christ, ministers, servants, disciples. We're called heirs and joint heirs with Christ, branches in the vine, members of the body of Christ, living stones by which the temple of God is built. We're called temples, for goodness sake. We're called the beloved. We're called followers. Wow. And all of those terms together kind of gives us a definition of who we are. That would be an amazing uh, sermon series someday. In a sense, it takes all of those terms to express the fullness of what it means to belong to God through Jesus Christ. But here in our text, John adds another descriptor to that list, and it's the term overcomer. In fact, three times in verses 4 and 5, he identifies us as those who overcome the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's a pretty good definition of an overcomer that I came across. Overcomers are those victorious ones who have learned how to master the flesh, prevail over the world, and conquer the devil only through Christ's life in them. Being an overcomer so that we can love the way God wants us to, is what the Christian life is all about. It's what we are called for, trained for, and the purpose for which we are sanctified, made holy. And we believe that as true believers, we are overcomers. How many of you do not believe that? Okay, make appointments if need be. Our passage this morning is quite clear about that. Uh, again, verse 4 and 5, John says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So in God's eyes, folks, we are overcomers. Now here's a statement to ponder. Just because we are overcomers doesn't mean that we are overcomers. Just because we are overcomers doesn't mean that we are over... What do I mean by that? Positionally, who we are in Christ, because of who we are in Christ, because of Christ's death for us on the cross and his resurrection, it is absolutely true that we as believers are all overcomers. We are. That's what we just read in John. 
When we were justified, given new birth, made alive in Christ, when our spirit was awakened by the Holy Spirit, God gives us the power and the ability to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I really want you to understand this, Paul is saying, in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength that, ex that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. To know the great power is a phrase means to know how, to be skilled in the use of that power. That's what Paul wanted, wants for each one of us. And that's often where the great disconnect comes. Positionally, with Christ, that's who we now are, spiritually speaking. We are that. Overcomers. The problem is that experientially, the moment-by-moment -moment part of our lives that we practice, many believers don't actually put that power into practice. Maybe because they're not really sure of that, that power or, or, or how to go about doing it and therefore are not overcomers that they should be. And that's why I say we are overcomers, but oftentimes we're not because we don't put it into practice. It all depends upon our moment-by-moment -moment choice to let Christ live his life out through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word overcomer is the Greek verb nikao, and it means to conquer. It means to win, to defeat, to gain the victory. The noun form of nikao is nike, nike, which means victory, from which we get the word Nike from. The Greeks loved the, that word nike. They actually had a goddess by the name nike. And this was the goddess of victory, the goddess of triumph. And the Greeks actually believed that victory could not be achieved by mortals, but only by the gods. And actually, if you think about it, that's a fairly accurate belief. In their minds, only the gods could reach the level of being un unconquerable. The word Nike is actually used by Jesus himself for himself or about himself in John 16 using the verb form. He says, in this world you will have trouble. Don't, don't assume that you're not going to, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is the ultimate overcomer. He says, I have won in the conflict with the world. I have defeated the world. I've conquered the world. I am victor over the world. But not only is Jesus an overcomer, but we now are overcomers. In fact, listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 8.37. We read a portion of that earlier. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know what word he used? Not just nikao, conquerors, overcomers. He used huper nikao. We are super conquerors. We are ultimate conquerors. We, we need capes. Seriously, we are such super conquerors, such super overcomers that Paul says in that same passage we read earlier, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how super conquerors we are. There is nothing that can conquer us and destroy our faith. We are super conquerors. We are unconquerables. 
we are the overcomers, right? So how does that actually work? I mean, what are, what are we overcomers of? Or of what are we overcomers would be probably more proper. First of all, we have become super conquerors of Satan. Well, that's, that's a big, uh, big concept, isn't it? And that happened at salvation and onward. It says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they overcame him because of what? The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb, Satan's defeat, happened at the cross. Jesus rose a victor over Satan, breaking his power. And John certainly affirmed this idea early in his epistle. If, if we were to go back to chapter 2 for a moment, in verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you, young men. And remember, he wasn't talking about uh, chronology-wise. He was talking about spiritually young. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil men, uh, evil one. Excuse me. How so? Verse 14. The word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Is the word of God living in you? Then you have overcome the evil one. As soon as we believe the truth, we defeat his lies. As soon as we embrace the power of God, his power is neutralized. And so we are overcomers because Jesus has already overcome the evil one. And that's why Jesus tells us to resist the devil, tells us to resist the devil. We aren't to say, God, resist the devil for me. He says, you, resist the devil. And what? He will flee from you. Why? Because he's defeated. And we are overcomers. Not only have we become overcomers of Satan, as powerful as he thinks he is, but we have, been, we have become overcomers in the realm of life as well. We've overcome ultimate death. I think the greatest scripture that speaks to that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which you know well, which says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what word Paul used there? Nikos. Same, same root word. Victory, to utterly vanquish, complete, uh, to conquer completely. Folks, he has given us that victory. Since the wages of sin is death, and Christ died for sin once for all, he has taken that penalty upon himself. And that's what we celebrated during our communion time this morning. And in its place, he has given us victory over death. He has given us life for all of eternity. And then thirdly, we come back to 1 John, we, we overcome the world. 1 John 4, 5, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. In fact, three times it says we can overcome the world. This is kind of reiterating concisely what he said back in chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. If you're still loving the world, if, if you're still attached to the world, you've got a problem. According to John here, if you haven't yet overcome the world, John says the love of the Father is not in you. For all that's in the world, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away in all its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. We have, however, John says, overcome the world. 
That should be encouraging to us. It, 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 it no longer overwhelms us. It should no longer be the object of our attraction. In chapter 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are for this reason. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it did not know Him. We're in the world, but not of the world. Its enticements should not be pulling at our hearts, but instead we are being drawn by the Holy Spirit. We are being drawn by the love of Christ. We're being drawn by righteousness. We're being drawn by the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. In fact, we are so much not a part of this world that it says that we have become its enemy. That's why John says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. And they do. You know, I don't know if you've noticed, but you can talk about God until you're blue in the face, and that's okay because God in the world is kind of a generic term, right? It could mean anything, and everybody's okay with that. But as soon as you mention the name Jesus, oh my goodness, the hatred is palpable at times. So what's he actually referring to when he says the world? What he's really saying is that we have overcome the invisible spiritual system of evil. When we talk about the world in the New Testament, we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about education and culture and civilization and society in, in and of themselves. We're not talking about human structures as a source. But we're talking about is a spiritual system of evil that exists without God. The system that's opposed to God and dominated by Satan. Ruled by him as the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of the world. It is a system of Satan, but it is, it's extrapolated to be also the system of man dominated by selfish ambition, by pride, by greed, by self, by pleasure, by lust, by, uh, by desire. John, call, uh, John calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But why is mankind dominated by all those, all, all those things? Because the power behind all of that is Satan. Because that's what he is. It is a system by definition that is ignorant of God, in open rebellion against God, and run by Satan who has set up his domain here on earth. And as Christians, we've overcome all that. Literally the text says in verse 4, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. All that we just talked about here, present tense, is continually overcoming the world. It's very important for us to understand that the, the, uh, the, the Greek uses that verb tense there. It means that the overcoming is habitual, it's permanent, and it's ongoing. We're permanently triumphant, permanently conquerors. We can never lose. A victory can never be taken from us. Now, we fail sometimes along the way. Maybe you don't. I have. Because we haven't yet been perfected. We're being perfected. And I praise the Lord for that. We may fall to temptation from time to time, to the enticements of the world here and there. We may lose some battles along the way, but the great war has been won. The victory is ours. That's a settled fact forever, never to be altered. So anytime you doubt... Anytime you doubt that truth, 
Go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us, past tense, done deal. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. You could say, we have been forever delivered from the dominion of darkness. Paul tells us with certainty in Philippians 3, 3 verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Is. No doubt there. That's where our hearts are. That's where our Father is. That's where our Savior is. That's where our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's where our room is being prepared. That's where we're headed. We may struggle in this world. We may be persecuted. I mean, goodness sakes, look at the life of Paul. The epitome of the apostle, right? Epitome of the great preacher, the great, great uh, theologian. He's beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, whipped, assaulted, attacked, despised, hated, jailed, put in stocks, and finally executed. But none of that took away his final victory, which lasts forever. They can never take away our salvation. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so we are overcomers. We are victors. We are conquerors by definition. Because that's what the Bible says. But interestingly enough, John isn't really focused on the definition. We, we, we need to get the definition there so we have that in mind. But John is more interested in giving us the description of an overcomer. How do we know we are one? What does that look like? Now, I know what the Bible says. You know, it's black and white. My sins have been paid for in Christ. The penalty of sin has been paid for. I've been granted eternal life. I've got this permanent faith and, and, and trust. I've been, I've, I've been given that. I have, I've had planted in my heart an affection for the things of God. I've actually been given a new nature. We've talked about that one, which longs for those things that are holy and righteous and good and just. I am a new creation. Nothing will ever change that. I've been born again. I can't be unborn. So we know all that theologically. That's in our head. But in practicality, what does that look like? I mean, it's because God in mercy and grace has made us super conquerors in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. But there must be some way in which I can look at my life and say, I either am or I am not a conqueror or an overcomer. And John actually points out three things, and um, you're not going to be surprised by any of those, because they are the same three things that John keeps talking about all the way through this letter. The three tests by which anybody's salvation can be evidenced. Number one is faith, faith in the truth. Number two, love, love to God and love to others. And number three is obedience, obedience to the Word. In order to know that you're a Christian and therefore a conqueror, therefore an overcomer, you have to examine what you believe about Christ. And as you look at your life, you should see the evidence then of love and obedience. Now we're just going to take a look at faith this morning. And we're going to hit on the love and obedience next week. Faith in the truth. Let's go back to verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is... The Christ is born of God. It's pretty simple, right? Easy to understand. Overcomers are only those who are born of God. The Greek literally says, out of God has been begotten. Isn't that cool? 
The emphasis being out of God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, out of God has been begotten. Out of God has been reborn. We now possess the life of God. Of course, on the flip side of the coin, if you do not believe that Jesus is a Christ, and John's very clear about that, and all that he is as a son of God and the Messiah and the Savior, you haven't been born of God. And if you haven't been born of God, you are not an overcomer. You're still under the power of Satan, under the power of death, under the power of sin, under the power of the law, under the power of the world, under the influence of all those false teachers that John is so concerned about that are going throughout the world. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, and all that entails, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human descent, nor husband's will, but born of God. The very fact, the very fact that you are believing what John is saying and understanding and, and believing God's word here is giving evidence of having been born of God. The fact that you can understand and the fact that you do believe it. You see, continual believing is a result, not the cause of new birth. It's your believing that proves that you've been reborn. What we received as salvation was a permanent faith, not a temporary one. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is what? A gift of God. And God doesn't take his gifts back. God gave us a permanent faith. Well, you say, yeah, what about people who stop believing? Well, John actually dealt with that. We looked at that uh, a little bit back in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Talking about the body of Christ. Now, this is a tough one, but John is saying that if you stop believing, it was never saving faith. It was never a heart change. Why? Because those who have been born of God are believing. Continual. It's a continuous aspect of our belief. We continue to believe. Our present continuing faith is a result of, and therefore the evidence, of our past having been born of God. And then we will man that manifests itself in our ongoing faith in Christ Jesus. No, there, there may be times that, uh, that you go through, have gone through, maybe that you're going through right now, when you know you're, you're, you're failing those moral tests. Just not loving with that perfect love that John is talking about here. And I, I, I know I'm not really being obedient in the way that God wants me to be obedient. What's that say about my salvation? I just, I just don't see the love I should see at this point. I don't see the obe obedience that I should see in my life. Sometimes at those times we're going to have to go back to that first great proof that John talks about here. But despite what I'm feeling here, I still believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And if I still believe that Jesus is the Christ with all that that means, then I have already been begotten of God, and that is the evidence of it. Now, we need to work on the rest. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with the, other, the rest of it, and we're going to be talking about that next week. 
But this is something really that gives me great hope for our children that have struggled with their faith. Many of us have them. Or have stepped away from the church, perhaps. We were there when we know that they made a decision for Christ. And we know that they still believe in their heart that Jesus is the Son of God. But they've been lured away. They've been lured away by the enticements and philosophies of the world, by the false prophets of the world. But I go back to what John says, greater is he that is in us, greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world. They're struggling, and we need to keep praying diligently that the Holy Spirit, who began a good work in them at whatever age it may have been, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, and that he will then draw them back. What's happened in their heart is between them and the Lord. But we cannot give up asking the Holy Spirit to work in their life. But for those who have left the church, who have turned their back on the church, on God, denied Christ, and I know some, John has very harsh words for them. Back to chapter 2, verse 22. Who is a liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is... (laughs) The Antichrist, against Christ, denying the Father and the Son. He goes on to say in the next verse, no one who denies the Son has the Father. It's black and white. But, he says, whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Over and over and over, John is singing the same tune. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ is born of God. Verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, what? Even our faith. Even our faith. It has to start there. And just in case you didn't get it, (laughs) John adds in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Pop quiz. Only the one who believes that Jesus is a son of God. I mean, he's, he's hammering on this truth. He says, get it through your thick heads. Understand this. Our overcoming victory then starts at the moment of our salvation and we are given that permanent faith that never ever runs out. Moments of questioning? Sure. Moments of doubt? Probably. And folks, God is so gracious in those moments of doubt that we have and those questions that we have. But we need to remember that doubt is a temptation. It's one of the greatest temptations that Satan uses always. So when doubt comes along, we need to go back to Scripture. Say, I'm going to stand on that solid rock. That's what Scripture has said, and I believe it. I'm going to stand on that truth. Jesus has defeated every enemy. He has triumphed over Satan, over demons, over kingdom of darkness, over death, over hell, over sin, the law, the world, and false teachers. And we are super conquerors because we've been given a permanent faith and that faith is because we have been born of God if there has not already been there will be some difficult times that come along in our lives and they may push us to the brink push us to the edge of wondering about our salvation or where God is, or God's love. But remember the story of Job. Go back to the story of Job. Satan goes to us, hey God, you know, you, you, bless, you bless Job, and 
That's why he worships you. Give him to me a little bit. If you didn't bless him, he'd hate you. Something that Satan doesn't understand is the enduring quality of saving faith, which had been granted to Job and is granted to each one of us. And so God had no problem saying, go ahead, Satan, do your worst. Do whatever you want short of killing him, and you'll see that nothing will separate him from my love or from me. Nothing can break his faith. And as you well know, that's exactly what happened. Satan went after him big time. Destroyed his family. Everything he owned and possessed. Inflicted him with horrible, terrible illnesses. What was Job's response? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Reread Hebrews 11 sometime. Some of those horrible things that the saints of old went through, and yet their faith was firm to the end, and was counted as righteousness. Enduring faith, unbreakable faith, unconquerable faith, overcoming faith, that's what we have. That is the evidence of the transformation and new life that we have. That's the first and greatest proof that we are overcomers, our faith in the Son of God. Next week, we'll look at love and obedience and what that has to do with being overcomers. Move the immovable. Break the unbreakable. God, we believe. Do you believe? From the impossible, we'll see a miracle. God, we believe in it. Father, this morning, thank you for your word, the power of your word, the truthfulness of your word, the never, the unchangeableness of your word. Thank you, Father, for transforming our lives and making us overcomers, making us super overcomers. And Father, I pray that that will become a reality every moment of our lives as we face stuff that happens in the world around us. And as we face our own struggles, whether it's illness, whether it's financial, whether it's, it's just the unknown that's out there, uh, Father, our faith will stand strong. Though you slay me, yet will I believe. We trust you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.